0: Please open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles in chapter 20. Our study tonight will be verses 1 to 19. 2 Chronicles 20, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, with some of them, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, Engedi." Then Jeho- Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout Judah, all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold... They reward us by coming to drive us out of our possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Zees. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O oh, Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. And Father, just as Jehoshaphat strengthened his faith by looking to the past and all that you had done. So now we look to him in his prayer and your great deliverance of Judah, your people. Oh, Lord, grant to us the same spirit of faith that we might pray in the way that Jehoshaphat did, that we might put our eyes upon you in complete trust. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A great resource for Christians seeking to understand prayer is found in the prayers of the Old Testament. These prayers, of course, include the Psalms of David, which teach us how to approach the Lord for praise, for forgiveness, for protection, for thanksgiving. But we're also stirred, for instance, by Hannah's prayer of adoration and thanksgiving, when her son Samuel was born, 1 Samuel 2, 1, my heart exults in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And that became the model for Mary's prayer when she learned of the birth of Jesus Christ. Then there's Jonah's prayer of distress from inside the, the whale. In Jonah 2, he reminds us of God's sovereignty and that prayer concludes with the exclamation, salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2.9. Then there's Solomon's prayer of dedication at his temple, which we studied earlier in 2 Chronicle, which works out God's readiness and the basis by which God will hear his people in time of need. Then when Jerusalem was surrounded by... The Assyrian Sennacherib, Hezekiah took the mocking letter of that pagan king and were told he spread it out before the Lord and he prayed for God to vindicate his name in the defeat of the Assyrians and their God. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hands that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord isaiah thirty seven verse twenty Now these prayers model for us how to approach the Lord reverently and passionately, exalting God for His glory and seeking His strength in our need. Now, among the prayers of the Old Testament, none is greater than the prayer of Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter twenty. Here we read of a national prayer meeting that is hastily summoned when sudden news of imminent danger arrives. And Jehoshaphat models here true spiritual leadership he gathers all Judah to stand before the Lord at his temple with their little ones their wives and their children verse 13. And Jehoshaphat in this prayer prays in faith he exalts God for his glorious power and he reminds the Lord of his covenant promises And then when God has answered his prayer, he leads the nation in the praise of thanksgiving, trusting fully that what the Lord has promised will be true. More even than the details of what to say to God in prayer, Jehoshaphat models the spirit of prayer in time of need. Martin Selman calls Jehoshaphat's prayer and what happened afterwards the showpiece of the chronicler's account of the divided kingdom. This is really the the high watermark of the very spirituality that he wants to commend, that we likewise should seek the Lord. Andrew Hill summarizes the lessons of this chapter. To humble oneself before God in the face of insurmountable odds, humanly speaking, and to trust him fully for deliverance, this is the essence of biblical faith. Well, to recap a little bit, Jehoshaphat, in the previous chapter, he had come back from his foolish alliance with wicked Ahab and Israel. He'd been reproved by the prophet Jehu, and he received that, that reproof humbly. And he applied himself to the reform of the nation. The previous chapter tells of the justice reforms, so that the Lord's justice would be exhibited in the life of the people. And so here we see Jehoshaphat acting with Christian virtue, covenant virtue in faith in the Lord and and so we might expect that in response to that uh, the chapter 20 which is going to be the last chapter about Jehoshaphat well it would end in the traditional fairy tale style he lived happily ever after isn't that the way it's supposed to go for those who trust the Lord well not according to the Bible What we have instead in this final chapter is a sudden assault so deadly that the very existence of the nation is imperiled. Verse 1, after this, the previous chapter, the Moabites and Ammonites and with them some of the Mananites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Now from this episode we learn as Andrew Stewart notes that godliness does not ensure a life without trials Sometimes it is the very godliness of God's people that makes them targets in the world. While well, the news of this threat came to Jehoshaphat suddenly, look at verse 2, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is and Gedi. Now, two aspects of this report are terribly alarming. At first is the size and the strength of the enemy, a great multitude from the nearby eastern realms, and they include the Moabites, traditional enemies. Those are the descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot. They'd long resented the might of the house of David. And then the evil Ammonites, with whom God's people had often had trouble. Then you have the Mayunites, not entirely sure who they are but the best theory is that they live in the region of Edom where the descendants of Abraham's cast off son Ishmael had lived. Now it's likely that this alliance from the east is taking revenge on the very war that Jehoshaphat had foolishly entered into with wicked Ahab of Israel. That was a war against the eastern powers. Jehoshaphat's the weaker of the two so they apparently targeted him. Well, hearing of this coalition gathered as a great multitude, he immediately realized he did not have the forces at hand to oppose them. That's the first bad news. What's the second bad news? It's where they were, the location by which, the, by which they've been identified. In Hazazon Tamar, that is En Now, En is only 25 miles from Jerusalem. It's in the center of the region west of on is Judah's side of the Dead Sea. Now, I have to say that I'm a former reconnaissance officer in the army. It was my job in the army, and I find the situation appalling. Someone needs to be relieved. Uh, or at least the enemy has done a very clever job because they've penetrated way into the defenses. You know, the main obstacle to the east was the Dead Sea. They're already across that when they're even discovered. And they're a day's march, as it were from the capital city. This is an appalling situation. It's a military failure of catastrophic proportions. It threatens the nation's total defeat, and Jehoshaphat, only now with them already there, he is learning of it. It is a catastrophe. Well, not surprisingly, then, verse 3 says that when he heard the news, Jehoshaphat was afraid. It's not the fear of unbelief but that of military political realism the life of the nation faced a peril for which he was not prepared it's the job of kings to be prepared he wasn't he was afraid now later in the chapter jehaziel will counsel him from the lord in verse 17 do not fear now it's interesting That the phrase, do not fear, is repeated in the Bible 365 times. Now, very conveniently, that matches the number of days in the year. Apparently, the Lord thinks we need one of those exhortations every single day. J.A. Thompson says it provides enough for each day's quota of fearful situations. How often the Bible tells the people of faith, be not afraid. Now, in reacting to this rational fear, Jehoshaphat shows us what to do. Believers, Here's the good news. Believers in the Lord, the bad news is that we're not exempt from fears. The good news is we have a place to go when we are struck with fear. The hymnist Joseph Scriven gives us this advice. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it. To the Lord in prayer. We have a God of grace to whom we may appeal when we are afraid. Now, in verse 3, the chronicler's description is particularly stirring. Jehoshaphat set his face to seek the Lord. Now, if you've been following along in Chronicles, that's the chronicler's language. Seek the Lord, he says. Set your face towards the Lord. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. God's people are to seek the Lord in faith. To set our face to the Lord is to direct our hearts and minds upward, looking to God in the knowledge of his word, making him the chief source of our reliance. Now, we might have thought that Jehoshaphat's first response would be to set the face towards his army. What? Forces he had at hand. And and I wouldn't be shocked if he did send a note to the local garrison. That would have been a reasonable thing to do. But Martin Selman writes that his prayer shows that he had a higher trust in God than in his military resources. Well, not only did Jehoshaphat personally pray to the Lord, but he hastily calls a national prayer meeting at the temple. Verse 3 he proclaimed a fast. Throughout all Judah, now we fast, that is abstaining from food and sometimes also from drinking, in order to abase ourselves before the Lord, to to show our humility, our unworthiness and our dependence and particularly the emergency in which we find ourselves. The result of of his summons as the people came, one of the greatest joys is for a pastor to call a prayer meeting and people actually show up. Well, they did. It shows you that all the work he'd done of reforming the nation, he'd sent his Levites throughout the country teaching the Bible. He'd he'd restored true worship. Here's the payoff. In time of need, he called a prayer meeting and the people showed up. Verse 4, Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, because we are naturally so spiritually dull, I don't need to tell you that. You know yourself. It often takes this kind of crisis to rouse us to a spirit of prayer, that which which should be the constant attitude of our lives. Such was Britain's situation in May 1940, when they were faced with a grave crisis when Adolf Hitler's army had swept aside the Allies in his invasion of France. By the second week of the campaign, the German blitzkrieg had shattered the French defenses, and now Hitler's panzers threatened to encircle the British army. And Winston Churchill, the famous prime minister, had just recently been installed as prime minister, and he he fretted that he was going to oversee his. Finally, all these years he'd wanted to be prime minister, and immediately upon taking the office, he will oversee the greatest single military disaster in the history of his nation. But in that hour, King George VI stepped forward and I think played the highest kind of role in their monarchy a king could play, a godly king. He intervened, and the king himself summoned the nation to a day of prayer. Now, earlier in English history, going back at least to the 10th century, days of prayer were a common feature of, their, of the nation's life. It was true of our nation in its beginnings. But since the 19th century, when Britain had turned secular, of course, there had been no such appeals to God, not a single day of prayer in the 19th century. It hadn't happened in over 150 years. But the king in this hour says, No, we as a nation, I summon the nation to plead before the Lord. David Gardner recounts the result as a situation not unlike the gathering Jehoshaphat summoned in Jerusalem. He says, The scene outside Westminster Abbey was remarkable photographers show long queues of people who could not even get in the abbey was so crowded so much so that the following morning the daily sketch exclaimed nothing like it has ever happened before well we beg your pardon it has happened before it happened with jehoshaphat what the king had done is what he found in the bible something similarly happens isn't it true that In our private lives oh we're so lethargic similarly we're so caught up in the affairs of the world until sudden news arrives of a medical crisis a financial disaster an unexpected government persecution indeed when we rouse ourselves to set our faces before the Lord and to seek him we often discover one of God's chief purposes in sending trials to our lives Well, Jehoshaphat's prayer is a model because it centers on the knowledge of God and his saving deeds in history. If people say, what's the key to prayer? Well, the key to prayer is not the right formula of words. It's not that we put uh, additional emotion into our prayer and just repeat things over and over. No, the key to prayer is the knowledge of God as he has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. And the prayer that Jehoshaphat's going to offer to the Lord primarily involves adoration and exaltation to the Lord for who and what he is, for what he has done, what he has promised to those who believe. It's a knowledge of the word of God that will strengthen us in our prayers. J.A. Thompson writes, The gathering at the temple recalls Solomon's prayer for divine help. In situations just like this, I think it's interesting. We look to the prayers of the Bible to learn to pray. The prayers of the Bible are based on them looking to the prayers of the Bible before them. And Jehoshaphat saw in his predicament a judgment from God, and the answer to that judgment would be seen in prayer. Well, the scene itself is very stirring. Look at verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Now, the temple had been built by Solomon about a hundred years earlier as a place where God's people could come and pray. And the new court seems to be the great portico outside the temple where the nation could gather to call upon their God. Now, so far as the Bible shows, no such gathering had taken place at the temple since that gathering a hundred years earlier. When Solomon gave that great prayer and the Shekinah glory of God filled the temple, this seems to be the first time since then when this had been done. And so when Jehoshaphat began praying, he does not immediately speak of the situation. He doesn't immediately talk about the enemies who threatened him. He directs his thoughts to God. Cyril Barber notes, his prayer incorporated a realization of God's sovereignty praise for God's gift of the land and the temple, recognition of God's covenant with David, a reminder of the history of his people, and an entreaty then for him to show forth his power and deliver them. Dare I say prayers like this one should be heard in the gatherings of Christian families in our homes. They should especially be heard in the congregational worship of our churches. Interestingly, the word for assembly, verse 5, the Hebrew noun kahal, that's the word in Hebrew for the congregation, the kahal Yahweh, the assembly of the Lord. It's the Old Testament word for the church. It's Judah as a congregation, a church offering prayer. Well, the prayer began with the first of a series of rhetorical questions. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Now, Lord God of our fathers is covenant language. It's highlighting God's covenant relationship and God's covenant obligations to his praying people. Now, Lord, Yahweh in the Hebrew, is the covenant name that God gave for his chosen people to use when Moses was at the burning bush what is the name that I should tell them is the God who's saving them and I am that I am the Hebrew is the tetragrammaton uh, we pronounce it as Yahweh it's the covenant name he uses because he has the right as a descendant of of the fathers to do so and he calls him God of our fathers you see, he's noting the promises the Lord had made regarding the ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who they are. And so if God's promises to the fathers is to be fulfilled, it must be so for them. And these statements are going to be the key to Jehoshaphat's entire prayer. Matthew Henry points out that he lays hold of his covenant relationship to God and the people's interest in him. And he cites this as the basis by which God's people can expect the supernatural intervention that God had performed in the past, that he would do it again now. I hope you realize that Christians may speak in the same way. We can invoke, we should invoke, the same principle in our prayers. In Christ, we are his covenant people, and the promises to the fathers pertain to us every bit as much as they did to Jehoshaphat and Judah. Now he further addresses him as God in heaven who rules over the kingdoms of the nations. Verse 6. Now he's confessing here the sovereignty of the God to whom he prays. And this is the great glory of God's people that through prayer we have access In Christ, through the blood of Christ, that's what the temple depicted, of course, we have access to the very sovereign God who rules over heaven and earth. Matthew Henry writes, this address acknowledges the sovereign dominion of the divine providence. It gives God the glory of it, and it takes to us the comfort of it. Jehoshaphat continued, verse 6, in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. But the God to whom we pray. This is Psalm 121, isn't it? We lift up our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from Yahweh, the Lord. Oh, by the way, he's the maker of the heavens and earth. Power and might are in your hand none can withstand you nothing takes place apart from his will and so we pray to him you see here's an antidote to the fear that had gripped jehoshaphat when this terrible news came he was afraid because of his weakness in the face of the threat but the answer to that fear is prayer to god in his infinite power Well, our prayers, like Jehoshaphat, should invoke the attributes of God in Scripture. They should speak to God about the covenant relationship He has provided to us. He has secured by His own grace. And then we also should remind the Lord of the great redemptive acts that He's done in history. All the data shows that evangelicals know virtually nothing about the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons why... I kind of preach a lot from the Old Testament. First of all, there's just more of it than there is New Testament. But it's our book. We're not looking at some, it's not background material. It's our book. It's the redemptive history of our people. And the prayers of our children, of our prayers, are going to be greatly helped if we know something about the Red Sea or 701, the deliverance of Hezekiah in the time of Sennacherib. And, and, And this kind of prayer, we're to call upon God to repeat in our day the mighty deeds that he did of old. Now, in this case, Jehoshaphat recalls the gift that God had made to his people of the promised land. And you see, that gift that God had given was now imperiled by these eastern invaders. God had promised to secure it forever. Look at verse 7. Did you not, O God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Abraham was called the friend of God because he walked before the Lord in faith. Well, how would, this is the way he prays. How, Lord, will you honor that friendship to Abraham? Uh, how will you keep the promise with respect to the land? How will you back up that gift if you do not defend it from these invaders? We should likewise pray to God on the basis of his promises. We pray for him to forgive, for him to provide, for him to protect, to him to... Gives solace to his people unto salvation. When Christians remember God's promises and pray to the Lord through them, we seal our prayers with the obligation that God has freely and graciously undertaken to keep. This approach to prayer on the basis of his unchangeable character, of his covenant faithfulness, of his promises, you see, this is where we gain confidence and strength when we pray. Well, the heart, the whole point of Jehoshaphat's prayer was his appeal for deliverance against the invaders. The heart of the prayer is his adoration to God, his remembrance of God's attributes, his covenant, his promises. That's the heart of the prayer. But the point is deliverance. Invaders have entered the promised land and he pleads for God to defeat them. And yet even this plea portion, by the way, you know our prayers tend to go straight to the plea. That's not the way biblical prayers are. Even when he gets to the plea, he he has a preamble to that, namely in the prior saving work of the Lord. He mentioned God's gift of the promised land. But but he continues that God's people have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name. This is verses 8 and 9, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine we will stand before this house and before you for your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save now he's saying that the whole point of this temple building that you told solomon to build that's where we're we're at the temple and the reason that you put us here is you would give us a place where your people could call upon you and know that we are heard In fact, what's happening here is the very kind of situation that Solomon early prayed for God to hear when his people prayed. Let me go back to chapter 6, verses 19 and 21. Here's part of Solomon's long prayer. Have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now you may be thinking, he's not praying for forgiveness, he's praying for deliverance. Well, not so fast. Because the whole, when you bring the people to the temple, one thing you're acknowledging is the whole reason that these things are happening to us is because we have a sin issue. And whether God is chastising us or he's strengthening us because we need to be strengthened, because we have a sinful nature, the issue underlying it all is not only the sin of our enemies, but it's also our own sin. And Solomon associates military disaster with the sins of his people. He prayed this, if they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people. Well, By bringing the people to the temple to pray and keeping with Solomon's arrangement with the Lord, Jehoshaphat was, shall I say, strongly insinuating that this present situation can only be accounted for because sin had brought displeasure from God. Now, here's another point we make then about how to pray, how to know that we're being heard by prayer, and that is that we pray to God through the blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christians can say we have the right to call him father. We are his children because we are joined in faith to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are cleansed by his sins. Many times I found myself talking to a non-Christian person. I can think of a particular occasion in Africa. We were doing evangelism with some Muslim women. And uh, they were were complaining to me that they prayed and and none of their prayers were answered. And I said to them, what is the name of the God to whom you're praying? They said, we pray to Allah. I said, well, that's your problem because Allah is no God. But I pointed out to them, you actually have a duty, even as Muslims, to pray to the true and living God. That's a duty. He's your creator. But the only way you can know that he hears your prayer, the only way you can know that you have sustained a relationship by which he's pledged his protection to his blessing is to come to the cross of Jesus Christ, to be forgiven there, to call upon him, Father, in the name of his Son, Everybody has a duty to pray, but the only way to know that you have access to the God in prayer, See, this, was, this was the symbolism of the temple. It's the place where the sacrifices were offered. This was a typology that would be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. It's only through the blood of Jesus that we can know that our prayers will be heard. Christians today bring our petitions to God in the name of Jesus Now, when we say that, that's not just a tagline because we said it all the time. We're saying what what we ought to be meaning, what those words are intended to mean is, Lord, I I come to you through that way, provided by the blood of your Son. And Jesus says, if you ask whatever you ask of the Father in my name, by means of my blood, my mediation for you, he will give it to you. Well, Jehoshaphat then has established his right to, to give his plea for deliverance. And then he gets to the point. Verses 10 to 11. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit it. Now, now notice here, there's a, a plea, not only for deliverance, not only the covenant relationship, but also he's, he's, he has the ability to add it. So he's going to add it. There's also an offense to God's justice going on here. Now he's referring to events that took place when Moses led the people through the wilderness in the Exodus. Numbers 20, 14 to 21 will show that God forbade the massive nation of Israel. It was a, they, were, they were the terrifying mass army. He forbade them from assaulting or disturbing these very people. They were vulnerable there, but by God's mercy, they left them alone. They obeyed God's command. Now these same people, ungrateful for the protection God had given them, they were attacking Judah when it was vulnerable. O our God, he continues, will you not execute judgment on them? And so here's a particularly strong basis of appeal, because this was a sin against God. Matthew Henry observes, the justice of God is the refuge for all of those who are wronged. While having made his plea on the solid ground of this saving relationship with the Lord and now appealing to God's own justice, he concludes, with the note of desperate reliance that is especially designed to touch God's heart. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Verse 12. Martin Selman describes this plea as one of the most touching expressions of trust in God to be found anywhere in the Bible. And to say our eye is upon you is to profess in you, O oh Lord, and in you alone we find our help. You know, many people today, really everybody today, has the experience of being forced to say, I don't know what to do. That's, but the Christian is able to say that in humility, in perfect honesty. Lord, I have no solution whatsoever. The man of the world is loath to say that because it is, he has nothing more to say. But the child of God is able to say in perfect frankness, Lord, I just don't know what to do. Because he, because she can then say, but my eye is on you. It is those who've come to God through the grace of his son Jesus who possess this key to peaceful reliance even in desperate times. Oh Lord, our eye is upon you. Andrew Stewart writes this was the most persuasive argument of all. God is at his most merciful when his people are at their most helpless. Well, the scene before Jerusalem's temple, after Jehoshaphat had given this prayer, is one to melt the Bible reader's heart. Look at verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. I, I love that line. How often I've thought of, of the nation gathered in a desperate hour. They've got their children with them, and they're all standing together. Jehoshaphat, the, the godly king, leading them. They're praying to God, and they're standing there looking to the Lord. You know you know what that means? It means, in part, God has already answered Jehoshaphat's prayer. The very faith that's expressed in, in the posture of these people with their children. This this, this—this this, this this should be the Christian church. The men and the women and the children, and we, we, we stand together and we pray for the salvation of the Lord. Oh, uh, the prayer is receiving its answer in the very faith of those people who pray in this time of need. They are depending on a God who saves. But the Lord gave them a more tangible answer, and he did it in a very unusual way. He sent his spirit to anoint the tongue of one of the Levites who was present. Now, we're given a fair amount of information about the Levite, but that information is not clear in terms of what it means. But here's what it does mean, verses 14 to 15, that the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Now, in proof that he spoke from the Lord, that's the kind of thing that someone might just cry out. It would be a godly thing to say, but this is more than that. And you know that because he proceeds to give details about the enemy arrangements, about where they're going and their plans, that Jehoshaphat himself could not have known. Look at verse 16. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. Now, again, as a former military commander, this is the very thing you want. This is, talk about quality reconnaissance. Revelation from God through the prophetic voice of a Levite who happens to be in your headquarters. Now we know what to do, but that's that's not what's going on here. It's not so that he can organize some kind of ambush, but that he may have confidence in the victory that God will give. You need not fight in this battle, he is told. I think one of the things going on with this Levite is that it would have special meaning, not so much to the people of Jehoshaphat, But to the chronicler, when he's writing about this event many centuries later, and of course the Lord has multiple layers of things going on. It's true in your life, by the way. When you're in dire need and he's saving you, it's partly because of the story that's going to be told to your grandchildren. Because the chronicler is writing at a time when there are no prophets. It's the time of the famine for hearing the word of the Lord. The prophets have gone, but they have Levites. What an encouragement to them. Oh, remember back then they didn't have a prophet around. But God used a Levite and God's spirit is not bound by human uh, you know, lack of provision. God's word does not fail his people regardless of the circumstances. The Lord had not abandoned Jehoshaphat. And we're reminded that his word will not fail his people ever when they trust in his name. There had been fear for good reason. But by trusting in the Lord and calling on his name, the Spirit says, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde. Why? The reason is because everything Jehoshaphat has said in his prayer was true. Those rhetorical questions, are you not God? Did you not give your land? Did you not promise Abraham? The answer is, yes, he is, and yes, he did. And it's all true. My friends, what's key about the hope that we have is that it's true. It's true. We have it on the authority of the word of God. He causes that word to go forth. The Lord acknowledges, the Lord goes, Father, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. The battle belongs to the Lord. The issue is in his sovereign hands. Do you realize that such was the case in the matter of our greatest need, namely the forgiveness of our sins? Sinners are restored to God by a grace that is provided by him alone. We receive it in empty-handed faith through his Son. Because Jesus has died for our sins, the battle of our redemption belonging to the Lord, we need never be afraid. Well, the continuing account of this chapter is going to tell how the Lord actually defeated the army of the East and did deliver his people. It's a great passage, but we're not going to go through it tonight. The victory would come by God's hand, and yet there still was something yet for Jehoshaphat to do. Verse 17, stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. What they were to do was to continue in faith. They were to wait upon the Lord. That's an active thing. It involves prayer. It involves worship. It involves uh, faith. They were to look in wonder on the salvation he had promised to provide. You see, the promise was confirmed. The Lord will be with you. All that remained was them to bear testimony to the saving grace that would appear. Well, an example of what happens when God's people set our faces to seek the Lord in prayer is given in the continuing account of this passage. It's going to detail the absolute overthrow of Judah's enemies simply by the power of God. Let me give you another example of God answering prayers. It was the answer from God to that prayer meeting summoned by Britain's King George VI. Uh, That day of prayer when their army was about to be destroyed and England and Britain humbled themselves and they called upon the name of the Lord in prayer. David Gardner, writing of this, highlights three miracles that resulted from Britain's prayer. First, for an unknown reason that historians have struggled to understand. Germany's Adolf Hitler Overruled his generals and ordered a halt to his Panzer Blitzkrieg right at the point when they were about to encircle and destroy the British army. That's true. I'm I'm a former tank officer. I. I have some sympathy with the German officers because they're just so good and you're studying them. And I, 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 I can see poor Heinz Guderian, that evil man, but excellent banter commander, about to pounce on the British, Erwin Rommels, one of his subordinate generals. And the word comes from the, the headquarters you're to halt your advance. Guderian never understood it till the rest of his death. Historians have theories, they can't understand it. It was the work of God in answer to prayer. At the very time when they it had one it made right move after right move victory after victory when he has them hitler orders his panzers to stop that's the first uh, miracle the second was a storm unpredictably and of great fury broke suddenly over the skies of flanders the problem was the british army had to get to the port but it's hard to get to the port when you have no air forces anymore, and they have absolute air superiority. And so the nation prayed, and a storm broke, and, and all the aircraft were suddenly grounded. The British remnant was able to make the ten to fifteen mile journey, depending on where they were, to the port of departure. Third, despite the fact that in Flanders, right right there across the, the English Channel, there was a terrible storm grounding all aircraft in the English Channel itself was a calm that the mariners of the time claimed that they had never witnessed before the English Channel is not known to be the calmest easiest sea when you read people swimming across it it's rather hard to do for this reason but on this occasion the people prayed and the sea was calm and that allowed every little boat to leave every harbor in Britain And in answer to God's prayer, they were able to safely remove 338,000 British British troops in a short amount of time from imminent destruction. Oh, what a reminder of of the value of our prayers. Now, often when people have prayed and the Lord has delivered them, as soon as the peril has passed, their eyes no longer look to the Lord. And to his credit, however, King George VI did not fall into that error. So grateful was the nation, so cognizant that it was God who had delivered them, that the king, having called earlier for a national day of prayer, he then summoned a national day of thanksgiving. They answered their former pleas with appropriate prayers. Here's how London's Daily Telegraph put it. The prayers of the nations were answered. The the God of hosts himself had supported the valiant men of the British expeditionary force. And with grateful hearts, even that secular nation took time to worship the Lord for answering their prayers. Well, how much more appropriate was Jehoshaphat's response to Judah's deliverance? We find it in verses 18 and 19. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah And the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Do we open thankful hearts to God when our prayers have been answered? We should. For those who look in faith to Jesus Christ, if one thing we have, we have an abundance of reasons to thank the God of grace One of our hymns puts it well. We sought the Lord in our distress. Oh, God in mercy, hear us. Our Savior saw our helplessness and came with peace to cheer us. For this we thank and praise the Lord, who is by one and all adored. To God all praise and glory. Father, we thank you for this stirring scene of our people. For in Christ, we are the children of Abraham through faith. And we see now what Jehoshaphat saw looking back from his times, that you're the sovereign God, the God of might. You're the God who has entered into a covenant arrangement with us so that you have placed your honor upon our deliverance. And Father, you have given us promises in your word. Lord, there will be some of us who in our personal lives will have a need to cry out to you in alarm and we know that you will hear us. Lord, deliver us by stirring up our faith. And Father, we as a people, we cry to you in times of need. We know that you see us. We know that as Jehoshaphat looked at the temple, we look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may call you Abba Father. You call us your dearly beloved children. Hear us, our God, when we pray. And Lord, would you enable us never to forget to give you thanks. You deserve all our thanks. May we not forget to give you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.